0: Hello. Today is Monday. Uh, My notes say it's Monday, April 24th, but that simply can't be
1: right. I noticed that. I didn't want to say And uh, (laughs) Eamon,
0: I appreciate you chuckling. It is uh, July 24th. Oh, okay. And you know what I'm thinking? I must have been thinking about uh, how hot it's been and how I wish we had the weather from April back right Right. now. Perhaps that's where my mind was. Yeah. Um, So... To get the record straight, it is July twenty fourth, uh, and I'm joined today. You heard the voice of Acorn reporter Eamon Murphy. Eamon, thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me. Um,
0: so it's been a, it's been a minute since we had you on, branching out. So uh, glad to have you on. Glad to have the Acorn perspective covered here. Let's jump into a, a story that you've been covering that's kind of moving still, and let's let's talk about the city of Calabasas and what they're trying to do with their law enforcement and and what they're trying to do with their personnel, essentially. And kind of, let's just, I'll have you break down that story as a whole, and then we'll kind of dive into some of the nuances through there, if you you don't mind.
1: Yeah, so city of Calabasas recently at a city council meeting was debating uh, the sheriff's contract. Calabasas, you know, it's a contract city, 40 some cities in the county, that don't have police forces uh, contract with the sheriff's department to be their police force. Um, And that has gotten more and more expensive. Um, Over the last 10 years, uh, the city is paying now $1.5 million more. Um, It's up to $5.6 million for this fiscal year. Um, But at the same time, the the city council is interested in increasing the amount of service that they get, that they contract with the sheriff's department for. Um, and that's because of uh, their perception of the public safety environment, particularly retail theft and burglaries, and a sense that things have been going in the wrong direction um, and a desire to increase uh, police resources.
0: And, and one of the things that I read in that story that really stuck out to me is that there's a time frame that... The The county deputies is essentially saying we need time to matriculate more officers. Kind yeah. of break down why that is an issue and what it does for what Calabasas wants ultimately.
1: Well, I think people are familiar because they've been hearing for years with about a deputy shortage. It's a familiar idea. Um, nationwide cities, I think, are saying that it's they're not recruiting or retaining the amount of police necessarily that they want. Or would like to have uh, in LA County specifically, there was a conflict with the last sheriff and the Board of Supervisors over the budget that led to a hiring freeze in 2019, which I believe was for not sworn staff, but there was potentially an impact on you know the amount of deputies because they need to be supported by the administrative people. Um, but the result is that uh, now um, there aren't enough deputies really. Uh, to fulfill the desires of the contract cities, including Calabasas. So the current sheriff, uh, Robert Luna, has said that um, he has the support of the Board of Supervisors to add um, new classes uh, to the uh, police academy to get new deputies. But that's going to take time because they have to go through the system and come out. So it won't be uh, six months to a year really until cities are able to get these requests for increased services fulfilled
0: well and, and i don't want to bury the lead ultimately that's what the city of calabasas and the city council is looking for they want yeah. to see more officers and they believe that's the way to increase or, or decrease what we're seeing in in home burglaries and commercial theft
1: yeah and of course you know, the the number of deputies isn't the only limitation. The city also has a budget. And as I said, it's getting more and more expensive to to pay for these police officers, the deputies. So uh, the city's in the black, but, you know, not um, hugely so. So there's there's still their own fiscal constraints. So at one point, the city manager said, you know, we might like to add five new deputies. But, you know, even if that were possible uh, on the department side, we couldn't necessarily do that. We have our own. Um, constraints. Interesting,
0: and uh, as you have mentioned here, obviously, Calabasas is a contract city. Yeah. Can you kind of break down what the relationship is, at least from the city council standpoint, to the department? How do they get along? Is or what's the relationship?
1: Well, I mean, judging from that meeting, uh, the council was very complimentary and supportive and positive. I would say to the Lost Hills Sheriff's Station. Um, there was, I think in particular, they have a, a deputy, um, Mason Matteo, who they feel very positively about, who's like the community services sort of liaison, special assignment deputy. And one of the changes they want to make, um, and we can we can get into this a little more in detail how that would work, but I think they want to increase his hours because he's split with, with Hidden Hills. But um, I think they feel very good about the relationships they have with the... Deputies that they're familiar with and have gotten to know over the years, and I think also, well, this is Agora Hills, not Calabasas, but uh, the sheriff was on their podcast recently, um, interviewed by the assistant city manager, and um, the assistant city manager was very positive about the changes that have taken place under um, Captain C two at the Lost Hill Station and the new sheriff versus you know the past, which was difficult and even had people wondering, you know, should we make a change in how we get police, you know, mm-hmm. services?
0: Um, if if we can kind of take a step back, you've mentioned to me, you've got a story kind of in the works that is related to this topic. Can we kind of dive into what you have coming next week down the pipes?
1: Yeah, this is another this was something that was on the agenda for the city council but it was delayed and since they don't have meetings this month it's not going to come up until August, but it's a city ordinance that they the council requested the city's attorney city attorney's office to draw up and it's um it's part of the efforts to to fight retail theft um which is which is up. So this is an ordinance that would require uh commercial landlords and retailers of a certain size to come up with explicit security plans, like how they're going to prevent theft, protect shoppers, um, whether that's like hiring private security guards, putting up barriers or physical features that would you know, be a deterrent. Um, and if, if they don't do that, or if they experience three calls for service, you know, if they call the police three times in one month, or have three documented property crimes in one month, they would then be on the hook for paying for... The subsequent responses by the police or city security. And then on top of that, if they uh, had a, a theft of $500 in value or more, and they didn't report it, that would be a civil penalty. After 15 days, if there was no report the city finds out, they would fine uh, the retail establishment $100 for every subsequent day after that, um, that 15-day period. Okay. Yeah.
0: Um. So there's a lot to unpack there, and obviously you said this hasn't been brought forward yet publicly debated. So no,
1: the text of it is is available, but they, they haven't talked about it. Uh,
0: so I think maybe perhaps perhaps we need to do a follow up after after that point because I think there's so much there's so many questions when you initially hear this that we you and I were discussing before yeah. we came on this podcast. And
1: well, and the be- the the best one I think that you you asked is how would you kn- how would the city know um, if, if they don't report a crime if if a store doesn't report a crime. Then how do they find out how does the city know how to enforce this? Correct. There was there was one other element which was you it would make, makes it a misdemeanor to fire or discipline an employee who reports a theft. Okay. So potentially there's an element of, you know, management or ownership versus rank and file employees. Sure. But I'm just sort of speculating about that in terms of a desire to report or
0: I, yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting. Topic and discussion, I think, and yeah. and I and you know what you—that's actually a really good point. And I hadn't thought about that. Is if I'm just working at an establishment that has a, a smash and grab, as they've been called, yeah. dubbed now, um, would I not be? Uh, would I not feel the need to call the law enforcement myself right. without considering? what this means to the establishment because it's Probably your safety, so. it's, your it's physical my safety. safety on the yeah.
1: line and the company might have a different view of it not being worth it for whatever reason which is you know apparently the issue some stores have decided if these crimes aren't going to be prosecuted if charges aren't going to be brought if people are just going to get out we're not going to bother okay i don't know if that's a resources question or reputation or I, I'm, I'm not sure what the reasoning would be sure. to not do that but that's what the city says the city says we reached out, we asked people to report. Most have people, meaning stores establishments. Most have, some have not. So here's our response.
0: Do we know, and this may be an obvious answer, but do do we know why the statistics are so important to them? If a business has decided that it's not important to them, why does the city want that information?
1: Yeah. That's, that's a really good point. Um, the city is saying that, uh, if we don't have the statistics, the accurate statistics about which stores are being hit, then we won't know how to deploy police resources, you know, effectively. You won't be patrolling the right areas necessarily. Or if it gets out, you know, because these these organized retail thefts are done by networks of people, groups of people. If the word gets out that this particular city is kind of a free fire zone <laughs> in terms of theft, then that's bad too, you know mm-hmm. if you if you know you're just gonna be able to walk out the door and and no one's gonna tell yeah. the police, then the problem gets worse.
0: okay um and that I think for where we are right now that that kind of concludes our discussion on law enforcement. If you want to know more, obviously, you can read Eamon's uh, story. It came out July fourteenth It's on available on the website if you don't have that copy of the Acorn. Also, this story is coming out next week, correct?
1: Yeah. There's one other thing I would say, which is that um, the contract cities, their arrangement with the county is on two levels. There's a five-year agreement, like the overarching agreement that Mm -hmm. sets the price uh, for the share of services and just the fact that you're going to have this relationship. Mm -hmm. And then every year, there's um, another agreement that adjusts sort of the level of services. So you can kind of reshuffle your... Um, your deck, you know, that you've agreed to have with the sheriff. So that's now what the city can do because there's another year left on the five-year agreement, but they have their annual other, you know, contract or other form. So they can adjust that to potentially change, you know, let's have like less parking enforcement from the sheriff, but more patrol deputy, you know, and this is a way that they might be able to get some increased resources to the areas that they think need it without uh, asking for a, you know a new deputy.
0: Okay. Which is not
1: possible yet. Uh, okay. So that's, that's that's something they can do for the following year.
0: That's a really good point. And um the story that you have coming out about the ordinance for businesses to yeah. have to report, that story is coming out next week. Is that
1: Yeah that'll be next
0: week. That'll be out next week in the yeah. Acorn. Uh, which is as we release this week in the acorn so right. we come out this Monday, so, so this friday you'll <laughs> yes. see it in the acorn thursday for an online subscriber yeah um you were talking about protecting shoppers
1: yes oh, as yes. as
0: it as it pertained to physical safety
1: mm-hmm.
0: but let's pivot to another story you had here that i was interested by i found a lot of interest and i'm, I'm letting you uh You guys can't see this, but Avin shuffling through his stories here in his (laughs) notes. I'm looking for my notes. Okay, Uh, um, (laughs) but I want to pivot over to the PetSmart story you just ran this week. Yeah, they settled with counties all over the state of California, but including Ventura and Los Angeles counties. Yeah,
1: eight counties, including some up north, and you know, so just California wide, pretty much.
0: And, And talk a little bit about that settlement and what, yeah, just break down the story if you will.
1: So this was. An enforcement action brought by the DAs of these counties um, about PetSmart. Uh, it was the, technically, they said it was false advertising and um, anti competitive uh, behavior, but it was basically overcharging customers. Okay. Um, and PetSmart agreed to pay uh, $1.46 million. Um, to make this, you know, to, to settle this. Of course, as is always the case, they don't admit wrongdoing when they settle this. That's my,
0: <laughs> that's my favorite part. Yeah, say. yeah.
1: So they didn't do this, but they also have agreed not to do it anymore. Yeah, correct. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Which is no problem for them because they didn't do it in the first place. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and I asked the I asked the L.A. DA's office for some more detail about, you know, how did this come about Um uh, you know how did the authorities find out about overcharging at PetSmart? And they said that they, that regulators, do routine inspections of businesses to make sure there isn't overcharging. And their inspections showed that PetSmart had an unacceptable rate of overcharging. But it wasn't um, it wasn't necessarily what I thought it would be. It was, for instance, like sale prices that were expired but not taken down in the aisles. So somebody would see, you know, the big price. And think that that's what it was. But then they get to the, the cash register and they they get, you know, charged the full price. So my,
0: my $15 bag of dog food becomes 20 because the sale yes, is Because the sale is
1: over. But even if the sale is over, if you don't take the tag down, you have to charge that lowest price. The lowest advertised price is like what you have to charge. And that was what the DAs were emphasizing in this statement after they reached the settlement
0: do we know if you see a coupon online or a price online or is it only in the physical store the pricing that you see
1: well my suspicion is that it's in the store I only th- i think yeah because okay. it's i don't think it would be considered an advertised price if it were not at that physical location but maybe it would be I don't, i'm don't. i not sure well
0: and, they, and the, usually these companies are pretty good about hedging their bets yeah. against uh, at available there's got to be some know, fine print legal there. print that would yeah. protect them if You can't just say, well, I have this coupon for $5. I want this. Anyway. Yeah. um, But as it pertained to protections of shoppers, I did think um, it it kind of was a big deal, I thought, that if you do see a lower price and then you go up to the cash register and they say, oh, it's this price – like you have a leg to stand on then as a yeah. sh- as a shopper now.
1: And it's something that I realized like I've never really thought about this, mm-hmm. you know, um when when shopping, like it's the fact that there might be a difference even I'm just not even paying attention really. When yeah. I get to the register, I'm just in like let's get out of here mode. Yeah. And I'm just, you know, willing to make that make that happen. But yeah. obviously here there was a problem like and it had to be of a pretty big scale you would think to uh to lead to like this level of an enforcement action. Mm-hmm. Um, and one interesting thing is that if you if they break they break down the one point four six million, so one hundred ten thousand of that is like the cost of the investigation which they're reimbursing them for
0: okay.
1: then there's a one point two five million civil penalty for the enforcement of consumer protection laws, and then there's another hundred thousand which is called restitution, and so you would think that would be like for people who are overcharged, but because As the office told me, it was impractical to try to to track down individual consumers who had been overcharged. The hundred ten, the hundred thousand restitution is also just for the further, you know, enforcement of consumer protection laws, maybe by a different body. But it's it's not actually restitution in the sense of anybody getting a check. And you know, you could see how it it would be impossible to track down people who were. Yeah. Yeah. How would you do it? Yeah. But um, yeah, it's not restitution in the really satisfying, direct-to-consumer sense.
0: Sure. And, <laughs> and, and I want to pivot back. This is a story I think that you were uniquely qualified to write and focus on. I mean, of course, we've got all our reporters here and this did affect different regions. Yeah. Talk a little bit about kind of your history as a journalist before you got here, and we broke this down in your first appearance, but kind of yeah. why you f- were so well-equipped to write this story.
1: Well, the interesting aspect of the story, or an interesting sure. aspect of the story, is that PetSmart, which is the largest retailer by locations, you know, specialty pet retailer in North America, PetSmart was taken private in 2015. It was a public company, you know, you could buy the stock, but uh, a group of private equity investors, led by a firm called BC Partners, bought it. Um, and when that happens what those investors, they're not looking to own it long term. They're looking to sell it within typically like 10 years. Um, and the way that they sell it and make a profit is by increasing the profitability of that company, you know, mm-hmm. because the price they're going to get for it depends on their earnings um, when they bring it to market. Okay. So what often happens is a uh, is cost cutting at these companies. Because one way to make something more profitable is just to, you know, get rid of your expenses. You don't even have to increase your revenue. Mm-hmm. You'll be more profitable if you just, you know, cut down on costs. So since that transaction in 2015, there have been several reports um, by media outlets and some advocacy groups about deteriorating working conditions and animal welfare at PetSmart. Uh, And workers saying that there's understaffing, there's a lack of training, middle managers have been let go, people are doing the jobs of, you know, more than one person. Um, And there have been some really unfortunate uh, allegations like that uh, there was one story in um, about dog deaths doubling uh, since the acquisition, like there were dogs who were taken in by their owners for grooming and New Jersey Advanced Media documented 47 cases since 2008 where dogs died during or shortly after a grooming appointment <clears throat> and 32 of those were since 2015 so you know who knows what the total numbers are or and obviously PetSmart says said at the time they don't have a systematic problem um, but there have been several of these issues there have been enforcement actions in Colorado, North Carolina, Tennessee about violations of animal welfare uh, statutes and, and other enforcement actions in other states about health and safety. So it's just, um, this is another example of uh, potentially a problem related to staffing because one part of the settlement is PetSmart is required to have somebody at the store whose job it is to make sure the prices are right. Okay. You know, and that's some, that's, a, that's a role that you could imagine, you know, a company might view as like inessential if they were <laughs> looking to to cut back. And I don't know, you know, whether that was a, a change that that company made. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, it's sort of another in a line of stories kind of about. Well,
0: and it's interesting. And the reason why I wanted to ask you kind of about your history is I think that's context that you would have had versus any of our other reporters here that given your previous experience, you could tap into. So, well yeah to speak yeah.
1: generally it's a it's a controversy how private equity works mm-hmm. whether these companies are being made truly more valuable or whether they're being made more uh profitable to the owners through a series of maneuvers that are not good for the company not good for consumers and not good for society necessarily mm-hmm. you know whether that could be because they're they're harmful to the business long term whether it's just sort of a financial engineering move whether because the services get worse, you know, whatever it is.
0: In general, is this something you would expect to see with this type of purchase, or or that you did see often in while you were doing this line of work?
1: It's definitely it's a you know it's definitely a, a theme of um, of covering the industry um, mm-hmm. like when when a when a private well when a private equity owner buys a company um, you know. Layoffs is that's often a concern. People are were but that's true, you know, the corporate restructuring sure. in general, yeah. you know. Um but yeah, it's um it definitely jumped out at me having remembered some of these other stories sure. about um what was happening to to animals and, and workers, according to people who work there.
0: Eamon, I appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Um, and spending some time with us yeah. about 25 minutes of of your morning. If reader, if listeners want to find you on social media, where can they find your uh, find oh, you on Twitter?
1: Uh, I'm on Twitter. I believe it's at Amon P Murphy. It, just confirm that.
0: Okay. <laughs> he takes his Twitter very seriously.
1: I well, you know, I quit Twitter. It is, in fact, Amon P Murphy. Okay. I quit Twitter in 2019. Okay. And, um, you know, that was during a, a pretty febrile period in the national mood. And I felt that quitting Twitter was a, was a healthy thing. Sure. So now that I'm back, I'm trying to be less kind of preoccupied by it. Sure. Um, yeah. That's healthy. I do enjoy, you know, I enjoy engaging with, with acorn readers.
0: Yeah. And and as a reporter's tool, as opposed to a.
1: Yeah. mm, Gotcha.
0: All right. Well. Eamon, thanks again for joining me on this episode of Branching Out, and uh, we'll see you all next week.